ages ago, back in the uh, old days. You remember the old days when you used to be able to get on an aeroplane and go places? Um, we passed through uh, Europe and we made a short stop in Turkey. And we were on a train to go and see the ruins of Ephesus. And as we went along through the countryside, I noticed small flocks of sheep grazing outside the paddocks uh, along the laneways and the roads and even, even by the railroad. And alongside every flock, there was a young man. Now, there's nothing particularly different about this young man than any of the other young men I'd seen up to that point in Turkey. Uh, typically, you know, he had a pair of jeans on, a T-shirt, ordinary runners or sandals, uh, and he had a smartphone. So my first thought, of course, was maybe you get better phone reception in Turkey if you go stand near a few sheep. But um, I don't know, I've tried this out at home um, a few times, and I'm not, I'm not convinced yet. Uh, mind you, uh, I'm on the Telstra network, and who's to say the sheep weren't actually on the Optus network? But anyway, my second thought was, these guys are shepherds. Now, I've never seen a shepherd before. I, I mean, I'm the son and grandson, etc., etc., of sheep farmers. I've grown up around sheep all my life. Um, and we have plenty of sheep and sheep farmers in Australia, but we don't have shepherds. Uh, the sheep we typically have in Australia are really highly strung English sheep that are a bit skittish and nervous. Um, and we move our sheep by getting behind them, rounding them up on, on horseback or a motorbike or with a ute and dogs, and uh, we, we move them by frightening them. We scare them and, and, and chase them along. But shepherds lead their sheep. And these were Turkish sheep, of course, not skittish English sheep. Um, and so I, I observed as I went along that when the shepherd was finished in one place, he would simply walk off to the next place, call his sheep, and they would follow. So I, I saw these young men with uh, sheep just following quietly behind. No, no fences, no motorbikes, no dogs. Well, it turns out today that sheep and shepherds are much on Peter's mind as he concludes this letter to the ancient Christians who, coincidentally, also lived in Turkey. Well, as you may recall, the main thesis, the main argument of Peter's letter to these Christians is found in chapter 2, verses 11 to 12, where he writes to them, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And the central theme that Peter's been addressing throughout is that of suffering. Um, th th these Christians in the first century world were suffering um, uh, the, the things commonly experienced by all people in the world. So living in the social hierarchy of the Roman world as uh, submitting themselves to leadership, being slaves, being wives, being husbands, uh, they were not exempt from the common suffering that everyone underwent, and nor are we. But they were called to respond to it in such a way as to bring honour to the gospel and to the name of Jesus. They were also suffering... As Christians, you know, which was the, the pushback from a society um, whose values and aspirations were at odds with Christian faith. 
And in fact, uh, they were even accused of being immoral, these Christians. And moreover, as we saw last week, they were suffering from temptation. Because to live in the world as Jesus' disciples means we will constantly feel the inner draw uh, to give our hearts to practically anything and everything other than to Jesus. And so as we come to chapter 5, we find once again that suffering forms the context for his concluding words. In verse 1, he begins again with the fact of Christ's suffering. And then in verse 10, he, he concludes with a verdict about our suffering. So all along we've been confronted, haven't we, with the intellectual problem that suffering presents to us as Christians, which is if God is powerful and God is good, why is there suffering in the world? And perhaps more importantly, why am I suffering? Well, being a bearer of very little brain and not being wise enough to give you a comprehensive answer, I have at least tried to give you a partial answer, which is, that suffering is the way that God chooses to mature us and to grow us up in the likeness of Jesus. And so it's important to observe as we come to the end of this letter that Peter describes by describing, finishes, sorry, by describing one of the chief virtues that suffering should grow in the life of Christians, and that is humility. So I want to look at humility um, really under three headings. Why is humility so important to Peter? What is humility? And how do we cultivate humility? Where does it come from? Why is it important to Peter? What is it? And how do we grow it? Where does it come from? So why is humility important to Peter? Um, well, the first half of our text today is all about humility, and it begins with his address to two different groups of people, to elders and to young men in the congregation. Now, there's not enough information in 1 Peter to put our finger on any particular problem that he's, he's seeing with either the elders or the young men, but we can start to reconstruct why he might need to address them. Now, in later centuries of the church, elders uh, will become a technical term for those who hold the office of a priest in the same way that overseer becomes the technical term for a bishop. But at this early stage in the church, um, these formal structures don't exist. The church had simply adopted the, the cultural pattern of Israel, which had always recognised elders right from the very beginning. So when Moses and Aaron went in to uh, gather the nation of, of Israel together in Egypt, they brought together the elders and told the elders what it was that God was going to do. And so we find elders right throughout the history of Israel. The earliest church had elders. And everywhere that Paul and Barnabas went, when they planted a church, they would select elders. And we don't get much of uh, a description of what their specific role was or what they were intended to do. Other than that, other than that elders were the senior member of the community. Um, probably uh, men were... We don't know much about whether women were elders or not. And these men uh, would have been selected because not only were they the older members of the community, there was something about their particular standing in the community generally that recommended them as leaders within the community. So it's not clear that every older man was necessarily an elder. 
Remember, of course, these are really hierarchical communities, not democratic communities. So it's likely that Peter's talking to older men in the Christian community who had responsibility for that community. Everything from administration in the community to teaching in the community to what we might call pastoral ministry in the community. But he's concerned about three potential areas of trouble. Elders, he says, are to serve willingly and not simply because they must. You know, if you've been selected as an elder in the church because you happen to be an older man and you happen to have some standing in the community, you might see the responsibility as an imposition rather than a privilege. And so it might be tempting to neglect your duties. It might be tempting to simply not care. And you might be tempted, God forbid, to see other members of the congregation as something of a nuisance. It also seems that here and elsewhere in the New Testament, the church was often prey to ambitious people who saw leadership as the opportunity to exploit the people under their care, financially and materially. And perhaps most of all, there's the temptation for an elder to start to think of themselves as an entitled person, to lord it over others, as Peter says, to, to misuse the authority and the power of of the position of being an elder. So eldership could potentially become abusive. And, and these really are the common problems of leadership in the world at large, certainly the problems that Jesus put his finger on when thinking about how non-Christians um, led uh, in their world. But this is not how Christian congregations are to be led. Because Christians, born anew, are to bear the character of their heavenly Father. And so this is where church leaders are to be thought of as shepherds or to think of themselves as shepherds. And we'll explore that image a bit later. But one of the chief characteristics of a leader as a shepherd is humility. And it's worth noting that the New Testament doesn't say very much at all about the structure or the form of leadership in the early church, but it has a lot to say about the character of its leaders. And leaders are to lead by example. They, more than anyone else, are to represent God's character in the congregation. And it simply won't do to copy the model of leadership that's found in the wider world. Well, Peter also has a word for young men who are commanded simply to submit to the elders. Uh, we've got no other context to know what's going on with these people. In fact, one commentator suggests that this term doesn't necessarily mean the youth in the congregation. It might mean all those others who might think of themselves as elders, but are not, who don't qualify, who have to put themselves under the leadership of others that God set in place. Although, you know, I have to say, thinking back to my own youth only a couple of years ago, um, my generation of youth were fairly convinced we were pretty much the first real Christians ever to walk on the planet. I mean, we knew stuff our parents didn't. We, we had an experience of the Holy Spirit that most other people didn't, um, and we really understood the scriptures. So we, we knew a, a great revival was coming through our generation. 
So it kind of amuses me now to meet other Christians of my generation who've become middle-aged like me and comfortably settled down into the status quo. It also distresses me to meet others of my generation who grew so dissatisfied with what was going on in church that they gave up on it and in the process very often gave up on following Jesus. Because the point here, of course, is my generation of youth at least lacked a great deal of humility. Now, I should comment that um, submitting to eldership in the life of the early church didn't mean giving unquestioning obedience because everyone in the congregation was to test the prophecy of anyone who stood up and pronounced, thus saith the Lord. Um, John in his letters tells his congregations, everyone is to test the spirits, meaning everyone is to test any teaching that is brought before them. And clearly no one in the church is above the discipline um, of the congregation when they're clearly doing wrong. Indeed, the Apostle Paul tells us in the, book of, in the letter he wrote to the Galatians that he wasn't afraid to call the Apostle Peter to the mat when he could see that what Peter was preaching of the gospel and what he was living of the gospel were not lining up. No Christian leader is above question or above rebuke. But nonetheless, leaders in the church are to be accepted by the rest of us as the leaders the Lord has given us. We don't have the right to line them up and organise them necessarily. We are to submit. And so humility is a safeguard on both sides. It's the standard on both sides. It's the standard by which you measure the fitness of any leadership and the adequacy of of their um, leadership. And humility is also the way a congregation relates to its leaders and enables those leaders to serve them best. And so we submit ourselves to the word, to the counsel, to the direction of our leaders because we trust that the Lord is at work among his people. And so Peter says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. So one of the key virtues that suffering is to produce in any Christian is humility. So what is humility that makes it so important to us then? Well, essentially, the answer is because humility is the polar opposite of what is arguably the chief sin of humans, and that is pride. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis has a chapter entitled The Great Sin. And he says, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness and all of that are mere flea bites in comparison. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Tim Keller in New York says... Spiritual pride is the illusion that we are competent to run our own lives, achieve our own sense of self-worth, and find a purpose big enough to give us meaning in life without God. I forget now who, but elsewhere someone has simply described pride as the ceaseless, relentless focus on the self. 
pride is what is at the heart of the great pandemic sweeping across the Western world at the moment. Uh, not the COVID-19 pandemic, the pandemic of anxiety and depression that we are in. Because we live in a society that, having done away with God, has now installed me, the individual, not me, Michael Crouch, but me, the individual, as the supreme authority in all things. I now decide what is right and wrong for me. And I am also the one who bears responsibility for my own flourishing and happiness. So I have to be an expert now at everything relevant to me. And I simply can't entrust myself or submit myself to anyone else's care. I have to be competent at my own finance. I have to be competent in the area of my own health. I, I have to be competent at child rearing, at career success, at well everything. By default, I am now my own little God in my own little universe. And that, frankly, is a crushing burden to bear. You know, people in our society are not becoming more content, but they are becoming more self-conscious. People are not becoming happier and better adjusted. They're simply becoming more self-concerned. And humility is the exact opposite of all of this. Because it's chiefly that state of being where you are no longer wholly concerned with yourself. So again, Tim Keller puts it best. The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. It's the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness can bring. C.S. Lewis goes on to say that if you meet a truly humble person, the thing that strikes you is that they are most interested in you and they're not at all interested in themselves. Uh, now, I should briefly point out, we have a lot of cultural counterfeits for humility. For example, my maternal grandmother, who was, like all grandmothers of my generation, an excellent cook, would serve these lovely meals and then spend the entire meal disparaging every single thing she had done. And any visitor at the table would automatically feel the need to correct her. What do you mean? This is a wonderful meal. My grandfather, after many years of this, of course, just said nothing. He just ate. Um, he'd heard it all his life and he'd given up appreciating his wife's cooking. The point is, self-effacement is not the same thing as humility. In fact, it's often an attempt to get other people to appreciate you and affirm you. Gentleness is not the same as humility. Although humility very often will make us gentle, but you can be outwardly gentle, but inward you can be seething with resentment and envy and pride. And in fact, some of us are gentle simply because we're cowards and we can't cope with how a confrontation with someone else would make us feel or make us look. So the basic rule is, if it's driven by self-consciousness and self-concern, then it's not humility. So how do we cultivate humility in the Christian life? Where does it come from? What, how is it produced? 
up to this point, I've described pride to you as the chief sin underlying all sin and made it sound a little bit like humility is the answer to pride and perhaps to sin in general. So I could finish my sermon uh, right here, which Phil had asked me to do, and simply say, be humble. Amen. But that isn't Peter's answer at all, in fact. And he goes on to tell us that humility itself is the byproduct of something else. And here's where his mind is occupied with sheep and with shepherds. Verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. That last line, verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you, is drawn from Psalm 55. And it's one of the David psalms we have. David, um, the shepherd king of Israel, penned this psalm later in his life, possibly in the midst of what was possibly the biggest challenge he'd faced up to this point, which was the revolt of his own son Absalom who attempted to seize the throne. And you can read about that later in 2 Samuel 16 to 18. David's adultery with Bathsheba and uh, the murder of her husband Uriah had dire consequences that played out both in David's family life and in the nation as a, as a whole. Uh, David's eldest son, Amnon, driven by lust, just like his father had been, raped his own half-sister, Tamar. Tamar's full brother, Absalom, the next in line for the throne, uh, sidestepped justice and took revenge. He plotted and murdered Amnon and then fled the scene of the crime. And throughout all of this, David showed himself to be a conspicuously negligent father as well as a conspicuously negligent king who should have been keeping justice. And although he eventually does bring Absalom back from exile, he didn't restore Absalom or forgive him. Somehow in all of this, David had forgotten the mercy and the grace that had been shown to him as a murderer and adulterer, so twice over deserving of the death penalty. And he kept Absalom at a distance ignored and in perpetual disgrace. So that when a lot of time had passed and Absalom was finally brought back into relationship with David, he had grown bitter and arrogant and ambitious and was plotting the overthrow of his father. And so David and those loyal to him are forced to flee, abandoning Jerusalem and heading for shelter back out into the wilderness of Judea, the very place that David had fled to as a young man when Saul was trying to kill him. And along the way, David discovers that one of his closest and most trusted advisors, a man by the name of Ahithophel, had betrayed him and gone across to join Absalom's rebellion. And Psalm 55 is David's expression of dismay at all that has befallen him. So let's hear Psalm 55. 
Psalm 55, for the director of music with stringed instruments, a mascal of David. Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my plea. Hear me and answer me. My thoughts trouble me and I am distraught because of what my enemy is saying, because of the threats of the wicked, for they bring down suffering on me and assail me in their anger. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen on me. Fear and trembling have beset me. Horror has overwhelmed me. I said, oh, that I had the wings of a dove. I would fly far away and be at rest. I would flee far away and stay in the desert. I would hurry to my place of shelter, far from the tempest and storm. Lord, confuse the wicked. Confound their words. For I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they prowl about in its walls. Malice and abuse are within it. Destructive forces are at work in the city. Threats and lies never leave its streets. If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were rising up against me, I could hide. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship at the house of God as we walked about among the worshippers. Let death take my enemies by surprise. Let them go down alive to the realm of the dead, for evil finds lodging among them. As for me, I, I, I call to God, and the Lord saves me. Evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. He rescues me unharmed from the battle waged against me, even though many oppose me. God, who is enthroned from of old, who does not change, he will hear them and humble them, because they have no fear of God. My companion attacks his friends. He, he violates his covenant. His talk is smooth as butter, yet war is in his heart. His words are more soothing than oil, yet they are drawn swords. <coughs> Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. But you, God, will bring down the wicked into the pit of decay, the bloodthirsty and deceitful, will not live out half their days. But as for me, I trust in you. As David leaves Jerusalem, he's confronted by an enemy, Shimei, a kinsman of King Saul, who David, of course, has replaced. And Shimei comes out and stands above the road and shouts abuse, murderer! Get out of here, you dog. And one of David's generals says, do you want me to go up there and deal with this guy? And David says, no. Who knows, but the Lord may have sent him, and I may deserve this. Author Eugene Peterson notes 
that David's suffering here was the product of his own sin. And that during his years of kingship, David had slipped spiritually as a king, as a father, and as a man in relationship with God. But now he says, back in the wilderness, where so much of David's character has been formed, we now see him recovering that which is so characteristically David. Hardship brings out the best in David. Suffering can, if we let it, make us better rather than worse. And Eugene goes on to say, suffering for some becomes an occasion for abandoning God and looking every which other way for help. But suffering can provide the stimulus for recovering a life of prayer. And most tellingly, during this crisis, David recovers his humility, something he'd lost during his long, comfortable years as a king. Because now he's reduced to a place where he is no longer in charge, and he no longer has the power to change things. He is no longer self-sufficient. And out in the wilderness, he's reminded of one of the great lessons he had learned as a young man, the need to entrust himself into God's care. And so David says to those of us, listening to this psalm, cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. See, the very essence of humility is the ability to let go of consuming concern for ourselves and entrust ourselves into God's hands. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. In essence, humility is about letting God be God and letting ourselves be his children. But here's the thing. We, we can't become humble by concentrating on forgetting ourselves. And, and the moment we try, of course, we fail. Um, if I sit here feeling myself going, you know, am, am, I being, am I being humble right now, do you think? Um, and clearly the moment is we say to ourselves, you know, I've, I've really figured this humility thing out. I've, I've become rather good at it, you know. We've disqualified ourselves. What cures us of a relentless focus on the self? Well, not suffering as such. It's the cross of Jesus that cures us. Because as Peter says in chapter 2, we have been returned. The cross returns us to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. We become humble by being saved. By having our attention caught up again by what it is that God is doing for us. Long before he became king, remember David began his working life as a shepherd. He learned to care for sheep in the wilderness and by his own account that meant learning to fend off bears and marauding lions. He also learned to shepherd people in the wilderness because as he fled from King Saul, um, all the distressed, the debtors and the discontented in Israel flocked to him. And he shaped that, um, that band of people into a disciplined and effective army. He was a good shepherd. 
But Peter has in mind here the greater son of David, the Lord Jesus, who is the chief shepherd. And Peter would have heard Jesus say this, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for my sheep. A shepherd, unlike an Australian sheep farmer, is more personally involved with their sheep. Uh, he knows each of them individually by name and they know him. A sheep farmer has purely economic interest in sheep. So on a, a sheep station of thousands of head of sheep, the loss of a sheep here or there is a fairly unimportant thing really. But in the Middle Eastern and in the biblical way of things, each sheep matters and the shepherd is more personally invested in not only leading his sheep to good food and water, but protecting them from danger. No Aussie sheep farmer is going to put his life on the line for a sheep. And I suspect when the Apostle Peter likens the devil to a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, he's thinking of us as sheep who need a shepherd. But Jesus is the kind of shepherd who lays his life down for the sake of his sheep. You know, I've been asking an important question about suffering as we go through 1 Peter. If God is good and God is powerful, how can there be suffering in the world? Actually, what we really mean is, because there is suffering in the world, and we can see that there is, then God can't be good, or God can't be powerful. But just because we lack the wisdom to see how it's possible that God would use suffering to good ends doesn't then logically prove that he is neither good nor powerful. And in fact, the cross is the firm declaration that he is indeed both of these things. His great goodness is shown in the very way that Jesus humbled himself down to the lowest most powerless position that any human being could occupy and dies in our place. And why did he do that? Well, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And this is more than simply a demonstration of goodness or a demonstration of humility. The cross, paradoxically, also becomes the expression of God's perfect power. The empty tomb... The resurrection of the Son of God is the very end of death itself. He breaks death open wide by entering into it and destroying it from the inside out. Tell me if you know anything more powerful than this. The power that can actually end death itself and raise the dead to life. In our culture, we, we can't think of such a thing. So we think of more trivial things like, I don't know, a V8 motor in a, in a Toyota Land Cruiser, or a, an atomic bomb, maybe. We can't even conceptualise a power so great that it would raise the dead. 
So where does Peter leave us today? Well, he leaves us with this. Come, fix your eyes on Jesus, the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Amen.